Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. Welcome back, my friends, to episode 98 of the BJJ Break Podcast. Uh, this is Byron. I'm here with my buddy Gary, and we have a great interview with you with Roy Harris, one of the original Dirty Dozens of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Gary, how's it going, man? It's going good. I am very excited for today's episode. We have uh, Mr. Roy Harris, another one of the uh, original Dirty Dozen. Uh, that's our second here in the last uh, couple weeks. Uh, so we are honored to have a guest of his uh, uh, stature on our show today. I was happy that he was able to give us an interview and, and uh, learned a lot from it, and I'm sure you guys will as well. Uh, if you want to get the Beach Day Break podcast emailed to you every month or every week, we do a weekly show here. Uh, but uh, if you want that in your email uh, box, you could go to the website bjjbrick.com or on our Facebook page and fill out a little form with your name and email address. That's about it. And we'll send you out a link to the, sh- to the show and all the show notes in your email box. So pretty simple way to stay in touch with us. Yeah, the good thing is you'll never miss a show uh, for a month, not one a month, for a month. Um, so uh, easy way to uh, never miss a show. Speaking of the show, if you want to be a supporter of the show, um, definitely check out Byron's audiobook. Uh, your first year in BJJ, uh, it's an audiobook that lasts about two and a half hours. It's only $11.99, and it's kind of a roadmap through your first year of jiu-jitsu kind of guiding you through everything you're going to encounter. It's going to make your journey that much easier. And so hopefully uh, your jiu-jitsu will be that much more enjoyable. So definitely check it out. We're getting great reviews. Um, and uh, what a great way to support the show. Yep, definitely. Uh, uh, every time we, we sell an audio book, I'm, I'm happy for the rest of the day, Gary. So uh, it's just kind of an exciting compliment and, and uh, to know people out there supporting us. And to hopefully we're helping them uh, get through their first year. Yep, and I've seen Byron when he uh, gets uh, noticed that uh, somebody has bought one of the audiobooks. He does the happy dance, and I tell you, one of these times I'll get it on camera <laughs> so you can see uh, Byron doing the happy dance, and uh, it's quite a sight. It's yeah. better than when he did the when he made the grilled cheese sandwich. It's it's been over a year since I've injured myself or broken any furniture doing my happy dance, so I'm being a little safer now, Gary. Yeah, that's good. We want you. We want you to be safe. We have the quote of the week, and this time. We have stepped outside the jiu-jitsu, the jiu-jitsu realm or jiu-jitsu world, and we have one from a guy named Yogi Berra. Have you heard of Yogi Byron? Hey, boo-boo. Get away from my picnic basket. Is that, is that the right guy? Not that Yogi Berra. <laughs> not the bear from Yellowstone Park. We're talking about the, the famous baseball player, uh, uh, Yogi Berra. And uh, so basically what Yogi says, I always get nervous. The night we played in the World Series. First pitch, I was nervous. Then after that, forget it. I started playing. I can relate to that. Uh, I think that's the way everybody is when they're getting ready for competition. You know, it's like that day or maybe the day before. You're nervous. That's normal, and that's that's okay. But uh, once you actually get going and you get a sweat going and your competitor hasn't beat you in the opening seconds of the match – quit being nervous and you start just doing your thing you know and that's a that's a really nice thing that have happened and it as far as i know it usually does it has for me you know that nerves go away and then the second fight you're not nervous at all you just want to you just want to do it 
Yeah, it usually does. It'll go away. You get out there, you, you're on the big stage, your nerves are going, but as soon as uh, you tie up and you're out there, then uh, everything just kicks in. It's just like a, a day on the mats uh, in the academy. Yeah. So uh, the first first minute, first couple seconds are the hardest. And then hopefully everything just kicks in from there. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a nice quote, and uh, he's got a lot of quotes out there. They're, his are usually uh, pretty entertaining, but it's, it's true, you know. Just uh, just accept your nerves if you've got them and, and to know that they'll be over shortly, um, you know, hopefully – you know, early on in that first match, and and by the time the second match comes around, you should be feeling pretty good, and and, and uh, the nerves are usually gone. Yeah. Hey, and an interesting fact about Yogi Berra: Did you know what his uh, jujitsu nickname was? No, I didn't know this one. Well, he didn't like to train in the gi, and they used to call him No Gi Berra. Ah, that's what yeah. I said. I call you. Yeah, No Gi Berra is what they call him. <laughs> well, that's uh. There you go. Maybe they should make a no gi Berra uh, rash guard. You know, actually, that's a great idea. Somebody needs to come up with that idea. Hint, hint. <laughs> if that's you, if you've come up with a no gi Berra rash guard, uh, let us know and we'll be happy to give it a shout on the show. Yeah, I'd like to buy one too. Just too lazy to make one. Yeah, that's a lot of artwork. Yeah, yep. and I'm not very artistic. Well, it's all. Everything's relative, Gary. I think you're pretty artistic compared to some people. Why, thank you. <laughs> well, the music is telling us to keep the show moving right along. Uh, Gary, it's time to talk about uh, a little bit of injuries here. Um, th- this article is from scienceofskill.com. It's BJJ Biomechanics Rib Injuries. And uh, it just gives us a little bit of information about rib injuries, what's typical, um, and what, what you're likely to see. And I think uh, anybody who trains jiu-jitsu for a while is going to get a rib injury. And I actually think rib injury was my very first injury I had in jiu-jitsu. And that kept me out for any any amount of time. So, uh, And I see it over and over again. Uh, somebody uh, goes knee on belly, somebody shrimps, and next thing you know, you hear somebody scream and, uh, and hold their side. And they'll be out for a little while. So uh, it's a very common injury. I agree, and it's got some basic signs and symptoms of a rib injury. Um, it could be anything from bruising, swelling, pain. Uh, it could be tender to the touch, and you could have some muscle strain around the ribs. Those are all uh, fairly common. I think uh, basic pain is probably your biggest indicator that you might have a rib injury. Yeah, and the worst part about rib injuries, everything you do, you feel it. Every little, not even on the mat, but just at home, getting up out of bed, getting into bed, uh, twisting, turning, uh, every little movement you make will send a sharp pain uh, into you. So uh, uh, the bad thing about injury, rib injury, is uh, it's going to affect your whole day. Yeah, and it seemed like to me uh, with my rib injuries – um, everybody turns into a comedian, you know. Everyone's making me laugh all the time, and it's like it's funny, and then it hurts to laugh, and then I have to put the brakes on my laughter, which also kind of hurts to to do that. And it's just like a, it's just vicious, man. That's why I always recommend wear headphones when you have an injury, and that way you can't hear anybody and laugh. Um, but uh, so that could help you out a little bit. It's not mentioned in this article, but that's my own idea. <laughs> That's, that's prescribed right there by Gary. But headphones are the biggest uh, way that Gary likes to help heal over his rib injuries. There's also, uh, I think, a common, you know, the article talks about resting 
um, icing your ribs, using some anti-inflammatory medication to help kind of just help that out a little bit. And I also like uh, in the article it talks about the majority of the time, I don't think we break our ribs. We bruise them. We strain muscles. Um, It's very, very painful. Um, But if you break a rib, you got to be careful because that broken rib can uh, puncture internal organs. So uh, definitely get it checked out by a doctor. Let the doctor tell you if it's broken or not. Uh, We don't want anybody to have uh, any punctured uh, uh, organs. So uh, let the doctor tell you if it's broken or if it's not. It's still going to be painful either way. But uh, so definitely uh, get it checked out. Yeah, it can. It you know it usually is not a big deal, and usually they don't do a whole lot for you. It's not like you're going to get a cast around your rib. But uh, if, if it's if it's bothering you a lot, and, and you think you might have a, a more serious injury, any any like you know coughing up blood, or it just won't heal after it doesn't seem to be getting any better. Those are all good reasons to go get it checked out, or, or you just it's better to be a little safe than sorry. Um, they also recommend that you do some breathing exercise and, and try to strengthen. Um, you know your ribs up, and 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 you be careful with that. You know you're not. Um, you you could I would think you could do some little bit of damage if you try to breathe too deeply, and if it's really hurting you, uh, d- don't push yourself too hard on those sort of things. Yeah, and when it's t- I wonder if it's saying these breathing if that's while you're healed. Um, I'm not sure if they mean because um, next part it talks about doing planks and uh, and crunches. And I don't think you're really going to do those while you're injured. At least I know I couldn't every time I was injured. But uh, um, the best way to prevent injuries is to, to keep them you know, strong and flexible. So uh, definitely do some crunches, some planks. You know, make sure you're, you're warmed up, your core is uh, uh, you know, stretched, uh, and uh, try to prevent the injuries from happening. The the rib injuries, like we said, like you mentioned, Gary, they're pretty common. It's not like you're going to get injured all the time with your ribs, but it's it's the type of injury that people often just kind of just sit out and let it heal on its own. But they can become a big deal if you're experiencing like shortness of breath that just keeps getting worse and worse, uh, some ch- increasing chest pain. Uh, you know, like I said, I think I said coughing up blood before, or if you have a high fever, those are all good reasons to go in and get some help. Those uh, yeah. I don't, the, the, something's more serious is going on and there's also it's not mentioned in the article but there's a thing when you break your rib uh, in more than one place it's a it's a flailed chest so that so that little segment of rib is not attached to anything it's just floating uh, independently and it makes it very uh, difficult to to use your your ribs with their four you know protect your organs and help you uh, help that they don't move when you breathe so that it really doesn't uh, it makes it hard to breathe, so that's a definite sign that you need to go in and get some help. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and you know, one thing I've noticed about a lot of jujitsu guys, if you look at a lot of jujitsu guys, there, we all have kind of ribs that stick out. It seems like we've all had little injuries, and like I know from where I've had injuries, it kind of sticks out. It's not flat like it used to be, and uh, I don't know if that's scar tissue or bone calcification or what, but uh, I've noticed that in a lot of different people there that yeah. train jiu-jitsu from all the injuries we've had. I've got that as well on my left side. I've got my, my ribs poke out a little bit, and I can't yeah. sleep on that side really, so easy. Yep. Yep. But, you know, just uh, like we said, rest them while you're out. You know, show up to practice. Watch practice. Watch YouTube videos. Uh you know, one thing I always did when when I hurt myself the first time, which was the worst, I could still go to the YMCA, get on an exercise bike, because I kind of could hold my 
my core straight by grabbing the handles on the exercise bike, and I would just ride. I'd, I'd set the timer for an hour and at least uh, break a sweat, keep my weight down, and uh, you know keep my heart moving. So uh, you know, find a way to uh, to do something that's not going to strain it, but definitely uh, show up for class if you can, and uh, you know keep active with your teammates. So even back then, you were getting sweaty every day, Gary. But I always showered. That's good. Um, I think that basically wraps up the article. There's more to it uh, than what we covered, but uh, that's a good synopsis of it. Uh, it's on scienceofskill.com, BJJ biomechanics rib injuries, so uh, like a subcategory of the biomechanics. And uh, check it out. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. So just go to the website and find it there. Either one is uh, pretty good. Well, Gary, I think it's time we roll on with our interview with Roy Harris. Stay tuned. You'll definitely learn a lot from, from Roy. He is the most interesting grappler in the world. He credits most of his wins to maintaining eye contact with his opponent. His gi never smells, even after rolling with the stinky guy. He is often seen riding a unicorn to open mat. When he got his white belt, black belt traveled for hundreds of miles just to roll with him. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Roy Harris to the BJJ Brick Podcast. Roy, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to have you on the show. Um, been a big fan of yours for a long time, watching you online and and uh, keep trying to keep up with you. And uh, you've been at this uh, martial art for so long. It's it's you're one of the original uh, Dirty Dozen. Is that correct? Yes, yes. And what does that mean? Well, um, it was a very popular uh, movie. I think back in the seventies called The Dirty Dozen, where you had a bunch of badasses who kicked butt and took names. Um, somebody kind of used that idea for the first 12 uh, Americans who got their uh, black belts in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And you were, you were one of those first ones. So you were definitely yes. an early adopter and uh, somebody who didn't just do it uh, casually. You really picked it up and ran with it. Yes, in the beginning, my focus was just to train in the art for uh, two or three years, learn the basics, and then move on because of my background and other styles. Um, my instructors told me that if I wanted to be a complete fighter, I need to learn how to fight on the ground. And personally, I hated the ground, and uh, I did a little bit of uh, judo and a little bit of uh, shoot wrestling. And it was okay, but it just wasn't for me. I really liked uh, the stand-up fighting, specifically the close-quarter stuff, uh, empty-handed with a knife. And so I just, my original goal was just to spend two or three years uh, learning the basics and then go back to my stuff. But, you know, here I am now, uh, 24 years later, and, uh, yeah, still loving the art. What Do you remember what switched about, about it that made you um, go from disliking it to having a passion for it um for me it was really the the training method you know i've been involved in uh 27 different styles of martial arts and you know they all have their pros and cons their strengths and weaknesses and 
what really turned me on about jiu-jitsu was the fact that um, it had a uh, a training method that I really like. You know, you know, you had a little bit of theory, you learned some techniques, you did some drills, and then you sparred with it. Um, and so that was really attractive. You know, a lot of martial arts, you do technique and then you spar, and there's nothing really in the middle. And uh, because I had some uh, fairly decent uh, quality of instruction, I learned how to drill it. And uh, that made things really fun. And plus, back in those days, I had a, a training partner who became just as obsessed with the art as I did. And uh, we ended up training, you know, like an hour and a half, two hours, three hours every day. And so um, that made a huge impact. And, and this hour and a half to three hours every day that we trained was outside of the normal uh, you know, two-hour class that we went to uh, once or twice a week. Well, that's an uh, <clears throat> interesting way to, to train and to develop uh, with another person as far as um, you both got a lot of time uh, with each other, and I'm sure that um, developed your game in a certain way that it'd be different if you, if that same time was spent in the classroom uh, with, a, with your coach and with a variety of teammates, but you had that you had the opportunity to train with somebody a lot, and you you definitely took that, and and I think probably you both um, gained a lot of knowledge and skill from each other. We did, and we discovered that uh, most of our skill sets were actually developed outside of class, because in class there was much more of an emphasis on uh, learning the technique and practicing the technique. Uh, but the drilling, there wasn't a whole lot of drilling. There was some, but usually you went, uh, you learned some techniques, you drilled it for a little bit, and then you went live and you sparred with it. And uh, you weren't able to develop anything, and so the group class was really good for learning, whereas the extra time that we spent outside of class, we drilled and sparred a lot, and uh, that's really where the skill sets were developed. Yeah, it's the funnest part, I think, and I think that's uh, common with anybody like you who has that passion. It's is to do do the this drilling and sparring and and develop the the stuff that you've learned in class. That that sounds great. Could you describe your style of uh, jujitsu for somebody who hasn't seen you grapple before? Um. One of my nicknames that I earned uh, fairly early in my jiu-jitsu experience was boa, like the boa constrictor, and that's because the method of grappling that I do is very slow and methodical and heavy. Um, my grappling method was uh, inspired a lot by um, Hickson Gracie and Higgin Machado. Um, two practitioners who are not only very talented at what they do, but um, especially Hickson. Uh, when I sparred with him, I felt like I was rolling with a 400-pound mind-reading boa constrictor. <laughs> he just um, he could turn it up and move fast if he wanted to, but he preferred to um, give you enough pressure to make you uncomfortable to where you felt as though all doors were closed except for one or two. And then when you 
try to exit the pressure through a particular door, you got caught in an arm lock or a choke or a leg lock. And so that made uh, uh, an impression on me. So I tried to emulate that. And uh, that became my grappling method over the years. And uh, so my style is more pressure-oriented than movement-oriented. That sounds like a great style. I like how you described it as uh, not just a 400-pound bow constrictor, but a mind-reading bow constrictor. There's that level there where it seems like everything that you uh, were doing back then was easily predicted by him, and, and he was ready for that. And I think that's um, – as uh, many new people and, and, and as we try to develop this art, uh, we kind of get to where we could feel out our opponents and what they're going to do, but uh, – it, it's always that the next level that can see um, and, and almost predict what you're going to do before you do it, and that's uh, that's interesting. Yes, that's a fascinating thing that that happens in jiu-jitsu only with a lot of experience. You know, it doesn't happen in the first two or three years, and it's it's one of those things that sounds really cool. And man, I can't wait to do that. But you know, the first two or three years is about laying the foundation. You know, I, the way I look at it is, you know, in order to build the building, first thing you have to do is you have to prep the ground. Once the ground is prepped, then you have to lay a foundation. And then once the foundation is laid, you have to wait for the foundation to set. Because then once you once the foundation is set, now you can build all the flashy and flimsy uh, things on top of it that people look at and think, wow, that's really cool. But, you know, when they walk into this multi-million dollar building, nobody stomps the ground and says, wow, Byron, this is a great foundation that you've laid. They look at all the flimsy stuff. And, uh, you know, if I were speaking to uh, people who were just beginning their journey in jiu-jitsu, I'd say, you know, it's, it's the flashy stuff, it's the flimsy stuff that you know, gets torn down in a storm, but it's the foundation that never moves. So it's the foundation of jiu-jitsu, learning how to position yourself and and how to use good posture and how to move properly. These are the things that really lay the foundation so that you can actually build something that's personal and works for you. When you started uh, jiu-jitsu, there wasn't the internet and YouTube and all this stuff, so you really got that foundation uh, fed to you by uh, your coaches and instructors. Um, nowadays, you know, we have our coaches and instructors, but it's so tempting, especially when you're new, to go and look at that cool, flashy stuff the world champions are doing and, and try to bring that into the to the game. Um, what do you think about that? Um, I think there, I think there are two aspects of jujitsu. Uh, one on each end of the spectrum. There's the fun part where we want to enjoy the art and we want to try things that are new, that are exciting, that are challenging. And I think that's good. But then there is also the other end of the spectrum and that's the functional side. And that is we want to be able to do those things that work for us, we want to be able to escape the bottom of the mount, the bottom of the side mount. We want to be able to pass the guard. We want to be able to hold down and control people. And so 
looking at a world champion, especially somebody who is a brown belt or a black belt, at those two levels, you're seeing, uh, especially at the black belt level, you're seeing somebody who is not only good at the uh, fun stuff, but also good at the functional stuff. And so many times people miss the the functional stuff that the world champion is actually using, and they focus on the the flashy stuff that uh, um, that the individual is doing, and that's what they want to focus on. And then they discover that man, I I can't do this when I spar. Of course you can't, because you're seeing a uh, a personalized art, one that's been uh, adapted over many hundreds, even thousands of hours of training. So in the beginning, yeah, you really have to lay that foundation, not with the flash, but with the boring stuff, because that's the principle of life. You know, you got to eat your meat and potatoes and vegetables before you get to the dessert. Yeah, and we all we all love the dessert though, but uh you do have to yes. lay that foundation and 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 uh and eat your eat the meal first before you get to the dessert. I like that example. The idea of uh the BJJ Brick podcast, the the brick to it is a you know the foundation aspect of it, but also um a brick as a weapon and that if you're able to focus your energy on a couple of like key techniques uh, for you, instead of trying to learn a, a whole bunch of techniques, you actually get like a weapon to use um, because it's a lot, lot more uh, efficient to, to learn a couple of things rather than a, than a hundred things. Do you remember maybe uh, one of the first things that you were able to pick up and maybe a submission that you were able to do exceedingly well that um, that was one of your first bricks? One of the first bricks I ever developed was uh, the straight foot lock. Um, I was very fortunate that uh, early on in my jiu-jitsu experience, um, I was teaching jiu-jitsu, uh, sort of as a self-defense class, turned into a jiu-jitsu class at the University of California at San Diego. And one day a guy walked in and says, uh, he saw us uh, sparring, and he goes, hey, can I roll with you guys? I'm like, yeah, sure. And he destroyed me in front of my students. He was a black belt in uh, Russian sambo. And uh, I had never experienced anything like that before. And so I was like, wow, what is this? Sambo? What's Sambo? So I started to train with him. And then I brought that experience to jujitsu. And I really took this uh, love, this, I had this affinity for the straight footlock. And uh, back in those days, uh, 91, 92, it wasn't uh, uh, as well received as it is today. But. Um, yeah, the first brick I actually developed was the, the straight foot lock, Get, and getting it from every position, the top of the the top of the uh, mount, the bottom of the mount, the top of the guard, the bottom of the guard, top of the side mount, bottom of the side mount, and being able to enter into it and control from it and finish with it. Uh, that was my first brick. And I, I imagine you were able to to tap up a top up a skill level you know uh people that you weren't able to usually tap out if you were going to get them uh, it was going to be that straight foot lock is that correct yeah as a blue belt i tapped out all the way up to black belt that's quite impressive and that's um i think that says a couple of things about the time and um 
but like you said, back then people didn't didn't really like the footlocks as much, and and they weren't trained as well. And you found that that niche, and you really uh, really worked on that, and it became a skill that uh, you found like a loophole in people's games. I think. Yes, and it was um, nothing I discovered on my own. It's just I happened to be in the right place at the right time, and this guy shows up and. Uh, I get a chance to train with him because he was a student at the university and um, my training partner at the time, we we loved the leg lock stuff and then when we started to use it in class, we discovered like, wow, it's pretty easy to use it against others in class because it just, back then it was uh, one of the forbidden fruit. Uh, we weren't supposed to use it. As a matter of fact, we got... Uh, counseled and disciplined to stop using it but still on our own we yeah we continue to train it because we saw the value of it i help explain to me that that the idea that it's not not a good technique or that it's the forbidden fruit you know everybody a, a choke is so final you know you, you could choke them unconscious it's clearly a fight any submission an arm bar will damage somebody's arm you know, severely, and so will a, a leg lock. You could do a; it's a fight-ending technique. Why? Why is it that the feet are often seen as something that is um, a little bit frowned upon? Um, from personal experience, I think it's a couple things. Number one, um, the instructors being unfamiliar with it, um, and the second thing, it tends to be a little more injurious than uh, arm locks or chokes. And the reason why is this. Uh, there are certain leg locks that when they're done, some people don't feel them until something tears. And because legs are primary in life, we walk uh, everywhere we go. Um, it's one of those locks that uh, can have a profound impact on your life. And so um, because of the instructor's unfamiliarity with it and they don't know how to counter it or get out of it, um, and then secondly, because of some people, not all, it's been my experience that, you know, if I leg lock 10 different practitioners, there's going to be one or two that you put them in a straight foot lock or you put them in a heel hook and they don't feel anything. And then you go a little farther with the pressure and then there's this this loud pop and then they yell and scream and now they're upset with you. Well, it wasn't really your fault. It was just the fact that you put them into this foot lock or this uh, heel hook or this knee bar and they felt a little bit of pressure but it, it didn't feel like they needed to tap you applied excuse me you applied a little bit more pressure and then um, something tore um, so those two things really amount to in my mind why in the beginning the instructors didn't want these techniques used in class it seems like um, some of the students are just they, they want to feel that pain before they tap. Even with with arm bars, I know when my arm gets straightened out and I'm kind of I can't really move the rest of my body. I'm stuck in the arm bar. I don't need to have my arm extended, you know. And and I know when I can't hardly move and I'm stuck in a choke and I'm getting a little dizzy. That's good enough. I don't need to go to sleep. 
And um, with the straight footlock, I think people tap for two different reasons. Uh, maybe I don't know a whole lot about straight footlocks, but it seems like uh, there's initial pain on your Achilles uh, tendon, and some people will tap from that. And then as your foot goes straight, it's like you're going to bend my foot backwards over your arm, over your forearm, and that's going to actually do some damage to your to your foot. And uh, and that's when most people will decide to tap. I think. Um, is that an accurate way to describe the the footlock and how that that mechanism works? Yes, yeah. The um, you know one of the things um, that I think is important for instructors to teach. Um, uh, thing that I think that is missing in the world of jujitsu is uh, the idea of how to uh, become a great training partner. And two, how to develop great training partners. Um, it's the idea of developing a community. It's the idea uh, of developing an environment that is safe and conducive to learning. And with people who have experienced the blue belts, the purple, the brown, and the black, sometimes when you apply this submission and you've applied it a hundred times before and you know there's pressure on the limb or the neck, and you see the person, your training partner, your fellow jiu-jitsu family member, and you see them struggling, give it up. Don't hurt the person. Give it up and go to something else. But because that's not emphasized, you get people who develop this mindset of uh, the tap is everything. And so uh, to me, it's not... Um, the fact that this technique or that technique is injurious. They're all injurious. But the what's missing is uh, teaching students to control their mindset, their emotions, and their physical abilities. It, I, I couldn't agree more with you. There's, there's no time in, in your training that it's worth hurting uh, your partner, and if they are unable to recognize that they're stuck or they're just too stubborn to to tap from it, uh, move on. You know, it's not it's not worth them uh, be, potentially being injured. Very true. It seems like you know every th- things happen in, in any sport. You know, you, the injuries do happen, but with jujitsu, we're so focused about you know my my arm bar is going to damage your arm. I'm, I'm really vigilant about. Uh, about that potential there, and that's unlikely. It seems to me that, uh, at least with the more careful training partners, you get injured from accidents. You know, you fall funny, or you you might roll over, you know, a limb kind of weird, and and that, and that happens. Um, and that seems to be it's an unfortunate way to get hurt, but that's more acceptable. You know, it's it's actually an accident and not a, a submission taken a little too far. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you do uh, a lot of training with with people who are. Um, I guess over forty. I don't mm-hmm. break it off at that age. Um, it doesn't everybody's bodies age differently? But uh, what would be um, a good goal for a student who is uh, getting on the mats and starting to enjoy jujitsu in their over forty? Um, well, when I first start training uh, an individual or a group of people who are over forty and they want to learn jujitsu, the very first thing that I teach them is mindset. Um, and I have uh, four simple mindsets that I uh, have them begin with. The first mindset is safety above all. 
what does that mean? It, it, it shows itself in several different areas. One, uh, you get there early and you warm up because now that you're over 40, um, you, you got to warm up your body to make sure that you don't get uh, injured because you're not 20 years old. Um, another way it looks, it, it shows itself is uh, you're sparring with somebody and uh, you're a blue belt and you just happen to capture this purple belt. Uh, you have to capture his arm and you're just an inch or two away from tapping this highly competitive young um, purple belt. Wisdom and experience will tell you, uh, 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 don't tap them because you know if you tap them, their ego is going to swell up so big that they're going to teach you a lesson in round two. So sometimes safety is just realizing, you know what? If I tap this person, it's going to go to the next level. Uh, therefore, I need to make a mistake and then let this person uh, get out of the arm lock. Safety also looks like this. Uh, hey, Byron, you want to go? And you know I'm this um, 20-year-old phenom and I'm a bit of a meathead. Sometimes you just say, no. You understand that my wife and I are going on vacation on Saturday and we're, we're, we're leaving a Saturday morning two days from now and I can't get injured. Or I have this big presentation that I have to make at work and I can't have, you know, a black eye, a deviated <laughs> septum, uh, this rash mark across my face. I need to say no. So first mindset is safety above all. Second mindset, enjoyment. Jiu-jitsu training is a hobby. High 90-some percentile of us are not going to fight in the UFC and are not going to be in some back alley brawl. It's supposed to be fun. It's a hobby. Therefore, I need to do those things that are conducive to me leaving the academy, feeling like I learned some really good stuff, feeling like I got a good workout, feeling like I developed some good camaraderie and a bond with the people that I train with, and that I really am enjoying this journey. It's not enjoyable when you're getting injured, when you're getting beat up, even when you're getting dominated by somebody who's much bigger and stronger. And so enjoyment has to... Um, also be uh, a part of making decisions to do and not do things. Um, the third mindset is evaluating, having a way of evaluating your progress. The tap is a very poor way of evaluating uh, whether or not you're making progress. So there has to be another way of evaluating how am I making progress. And then the fourth mindset is have a progression, have a structured progression that uh, develops your skill sets so that you can see this, um, this progression, how I was totally clueless to sweeps. I now know some sweeps. I now can see the sweeps. I can now barely enter into the sweeps and off-balance somebody. I can almost get the sweep. I can get the sweep. I am now using the sweep as I set up for my arm locks. Do you see that progression? 
from, you don't know it to, you just know it, but you can't do it. But now you can enter into it to eventually, you're not only using it to put people on their back, but you're using it as a tool to set people up for an arm lock or a choke. So there has to be this structured progression um, in your training so that you can see the progress. And so everything begins with mindset. And then the second thing I show them is how to position themselves. Um, the way I look at it, it's like lifting a heavy weight. The first thing you do is you position yourself. And then the second thing you do is you move the weight. So just like you're going to uh, deadlift 400 pounds, you got to have the mindset of, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. And then the second thing you have to do is you uh, position yourself properly so that you don't injure yourself. And then eventually you have to have a proper movement uh, skill set. And so that is how I uh, present jiu-jitsu to the over 40 uh, practitioners that I teach. That it sounds like um, a great uh, four things you say. I'll go through them real quick. Um, safety above all, enjoyment, evaluating progress and progression uh, in a structured yeah. way. That that is, I think that's great for anybody. But yeah, you really geared towards the to the over forty crowd there. Um, I really like the the enjoyment aspect of it that. We're doing this for fun. If it's not fun, something's wrong with with what you're doing. And uh, you know, as we all get older, fitness it becomes even more important as we as we age. So being able to do a fitness activity that is fun. I'm not just you know aimlessly jogging down the road, uh, getting bored. I'm going to just do it is fun, and I am getting a great workout. And 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 th- that's that's just amazing. There, uh, you you mentioned evaluating your progress. And uh, getting taps is not a not a great way to evaluate how you're doing. How how could somebody evaluate you know what they're doing or if what they're doing is is the right thing for them? Um, the uh, and this is where uh, good instructor uh, having a good instructor that uh, cares about you and takes the time to help you to evaluate where your progress is. Um, the, uh, in the, when I started this over 40 thing back in the early 2000s, um, I did so because my inbox, my email inbox, got full of hundreds of emails from practitioners around the world complaining about the very same things, about... Um, you know, sparring with these young guns, the guys in their late teens and 20s, uh, guys who go hard and fast and explosive. And uh, and then also they weren't, they didn't know how to uh, evaluate their progress. Um, so when I started this back in, I think it was like uh, when, the, when the, my BGZ over 40 DVD came out in 2003, 2004, um, I got a lot of positive feedback from that, and um, I got a lot of emails from people telling me that they not only enjoyed the information, but they saw how the information was lowering the amount of injuries uh, that they were receiving from the young guns. And to me, I think uh, lowering the amount of injuries that you experience during uh, your jiu-jitsu training is one of the big rocks 
of evaluating your progress. I think another way of evaluating your progress is your enjoyment. You know, everybody wants to uh, evaluate their progress based on skill set. But when it comes to developing a skill with any physical endeavor, it's a uh, time-consuming process. You can't evaluate your progress from day to day or from week to week. You can see it a little bit in the month-to-month or year-to-year, but the skill sets don't come very quickly. However, injuries and enjoyment, uh, you can evaluate those day-to-day and week-to-week. And so I think a good place to start for the over 40 practitioners is, are you, um, with this new mindset and with this new positioning and the new techniques that you've learned from the BJJ over 40, um, do you feel yourself getting injured less? Do you feel yourself starting to enjoy the journey more? That's a good start. Yeah, that that is great. You you mentioned uh, training with the young guys and 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 you know trying to avoid uh, having them rough you up and 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 take away that enjoyment. Um, if you the only gym that's available for you is is a gym that's like that, they're full of people who are uh, active competitors, maybe some MMA, and it's it's a fairly elite gym. Would an older person be able to go in there and and with the proper attitude and, and mindset, be able to train his training partners how to properly uh, train with, with them? Yes. Um, I believe everything begins with good leadership and good communication. And so I would advise the over 40 practitioner to um, walk in and sit down and have a talk with his instructor first. And then secondly, uh, talk with some of the guys and gals that he wants to train with. For example, back in the day when I had my academy, I had a number of people uh, come and look at my gym and like what they saw and then pull me into my office and say, I need to speak with you privately. And they told me, you know, look, I'm a Navy SEAL. Look, I'm a, uh, a surgeon. And they presented their need to me and they said, you know, I like what I see here, but... I can't get injured. And so I want to know if you will help me to not get injured. And I said, sure. And so when I saw Dr. So-and-so, who was a hand specialist surgeon, go out and uh, pick a training partner, uh, sometimes I saw the training partner and they're like, okay, that's a good training partner. He can work with him tonight. Or I saw him pick one of my... Uh, one of my knuckleheads, and I would say, no, 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 um, uh, let me have you work with him. So I felt as though as a leader that I was responsible for my clients. And so I think the first thing that the over 40 practitioner needs to do is to have a serious sit-down talk with their instructor and to make their instructor partially responsible for the good training partners. Second thing that the over 40 practitioner needs to do is to go to um, the guys and gals that they like, especially the ones that are the competitors, and say, hey, you know, I, I really want to work with you guys, but I need you to understand that, you know, I'm a vice president of this company, I am a hand surgeon, I am whatever, 
and I really can't get injured. And when you work with me, when you spar with me, can I ask you a personal favor? Can I ask you to tone it down? Uh, because I, I just, I can't get injured. And uh, I'm not copying out. I'm not trying to um, tell you that I'm afraid, but I just need you to do this for me. And so by communicating those thoughts to your instructors and your training partners, um, now you have the opportunity to train safely. And hopefully um, they will allow you to. Yeah, I think that if um, and and you roll that way to where if if I talk to you and say, hey, you know, I'm really worried about you know getting hurt, and you get me in a, a near arm bar, and you kind of slow things down, and I yank my arm out as quick as I can, and and with a bunch of energy and force, uh, you're gonna the conversation I think will lose some of its meaning if if I'm taking advantage of because a lot of people like you said before you know you shouldn't injure your partners you know trying to finish their submission but a lot of people you know they get 90% there and they slow down for you to do you the favor and then use that as an opportunity to escape that would be frustrating for a lot of people so you i think rolling that way um, also would be a, a great thing that uh, that they would need to implement yeah you know what's interesting um since i started um doing more BJJ over 40 workshops and this year I started doing the BJJ over 40 instructor course. Um, I've made an interesting observation and that is uh, the problem children that I have are all guys in their 50s. Guys in their 40s and guys in their 60s, majority of them, nine out of 10 of those guys, they get it. They understand that, you know, this is a hobby. And But guys in their 50s, I don't know. It's like we, I'm 53 myself, and uh, I don't know if they think it's the last hurrah or they still got it or what, but uh, in many of my workshops, uh, I've actually had to scold several guys in their 50s. It's like, slow down. You're the reason why a lot of these 20-year-olds are hurting you. Yeah, the 20-year-olds are going hard, but you're going just as hard. And I understand you feel as though you need to, uh, if they go fast, you go fast. If they go hard, you go hard. No, that's the 20-year-old mindset, and it's guaranteed to give you an injury. You need to slow down. I know you don't believe me, but uh, you need to slow down. So it's been interesting to observe that uh, the people that uh, I've had the most problems with that uh, still spar very hard, even though they're older 40 practitioner, is the guys in the 50s. That's an interesting interesting observation about, uh, I don't know, what's going on in their minds that that make them do that uh, a little differently, but... uh you're in a unique position to to notice something like that and uh, thanks for sharing that and if that might be you out there uh, listening to this take that to heart and maybe if you could slow things down a little bit uh, on your end people will react that way and and they'll 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 help you out on that and slow down Mm -hmm. as well usually um you have a a preference uh, for gi or no gi um for the over 40 crowd um no i leave that up to the uh to the individual practitioner because some like gi, some like no gi. Myself, thanks to grandma and grandpa, I started to develop arthritis in my hands in my early 30s. And so I can't do a lot of hard gi work. Um, Plus, it's been my experience uh, that 
100% of the grip fighting used in no gi applies to the gi, but only about 20% of the gi fighting applies to no gi. And so I tend to lean more towards the no-gi because of the arthritis in my hands and because the application of the grips. But some people just have this idea that, you know, it's all about the gi and I have to work with the gi. And so we spend time working with the gi. So I I really let the uh, individual practitioner choose. Could you maybe give us an example about uh, some no-gi grip fighting and and how that would translate over easier than than the gi grip fighting? Yes, the no-gi grip fighting, you tend to do more uh, cupping with the hand and hooking with the hand in the wrist. That is something you can do with the gi and without the gi. With the gi, most people do the hammer fist kind of grip or the panther grip where the fingers are uh, pulled in uh, and sometimes the fingers are pulled all the way in all the way in like a fist Um, but uh, that particular grip does not work all the time sometimes it doesn't even work most of the time when you have somebody big strong and sweaty and so the uh, cupping with the hand or the uh, cupping with the hand and the wrist those apply both knee, uh, gi and no gi. Um, back in the day when I, when I did a lot of uh, uh, no gi work, and I'm talking about when I first opened up my academy in 1994, I was like the only uh, individual who was doing no gi work. As a matter of fact, that expression didn't exist. I'd have people come to my academy from other academies and say, what is that? And I was like, well, this is our no gi work. Like, no, there's no such thing as no gi work. Um, that just looks like Bali Tudo. It's like, no, we're doing jujitsu, the same thing, but we're doing it without the gi. Oh, there's no such thing as no gi. And people would come and train with us, and we called them shredders because they were so uh, used to the gi, they would grab our T-shirts <laughs> at the sleeve by the bicep or at the neck, um, and they'd grab it like a gi, and they'd end up ripping and shredding our T-shirts because they were so used to grabbing cloth in a fist and controlling you that way. So um, I think the cupping with the hand and the wrist, um, that's a great example of uh, a grip that can be used, no gi uh, and gi. That's, that, thanks for clarifying that. And uh, the shredders brought back memories of when I was a, a white belt, maybe a blue belt, uh, getting choked by my own T-shirt uh, hearing it give out and hearing it rip, I, I don't know if I was happy that uh, the choke was dissolving or frustrated that my shirt was getting ruined. But uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you kind of pioneered yeah. the, the no gi uh, side of uh, jujitsu. That sounds that's really cool. A lot of people um, over forty or in, at any age um, aren't able to train every day, like you were able to train when when you were younger and you had the partner and you were training hours before class and and then go to class. If you're only able to train twice a week or maybe three times, how are, how what uh, advice would you give to a student uh, to be able to to build their skill and progress in their in their techniques? Um here are my thoughts on that subject. First thing I would tell uh people and I've told people this, I say you have to change your mindset. What you mean is train at my academy. 
you can train every day. You don't need a training partner to train. You can train every day. Um, how do you train every day? Learning some fundamental movements like your bridge, your shrimping, stand up and base, roll over your shoulder forward, roll over your shoulder backwards, spin on your hands. These are all movements that you can do at home every day to develop the strength and the flexibility and the endurance in the muscles that you use for the majority of your basic techniques. And so the idea of, uh, I, can't, I can only train twice a week, well, that's not a correct statement. What you mean is you can't train at your academy more than two days a week because your life is busy. I understand that, but you can train every day. You can only train at your academy twice a week, that's good. Train at home five days a week by doing simple exercises um, to develop uh, strength and endurance and flexibility. Um, second thing I would recommend is, uh, number one, save your pennies and buy some mats. Okay, so it's going to take you two years to save your pennies. Go into it with two or three other guys so that you can do it much sooner and buy some mats and train out of somebody's garage one day a week, two days a week. Uh, another way is to take a look around town and see if there isn't uh, an open room somewhere where you can throw down some mats or even, they, even if they have some mats. Like one of the things that I told my students to do many years ago was uh, at the uh, uh, one of the major universities here in California, once they built a new main gym, everybody left the old gym and was now training at the new gym. And the old gym had a mat room, and it wasn't being used. And so I was like, you know, you, yes, you have to pay some parking, and it was like 4 or $5. You had to pay some parking to park on campus, but drive up there and use the mat room in the old gym. Uh, get together with, you know, with guys at your academy, exchange phone numbers, exchange emails, and say, hey, can we get together on uh, Wednesdays after work and Saturday mornings? Um, that's an additional two days a week that you can train. Um, and then the, one of the ways that I trained myself to, um, once my training partner started to get busy was, I went, uh, I learned this technique from uh, a book called Guerrilla Marketing by, uh, by uh, Conrad Levinson, um, where I went out and made some flyers, put flyers on uh, cars all around my neighborhood, made 400 flyers, bought a little pager and had people call me. Uh, the flyer basically said, I would teach jujitsu for free if you wanted to learn it. And here was the goal. My goal was to get 30 to 40 people to call me interview them, and then narrow that 30 or 40 down to, oh, 9, 10, 11, 12 people that I wanted to train with, and I would teach them jiu-jitsu for free for, let's say, 45 days. We would train for an hour, once a week, but during that hour, they would have to do exactly what I wanted them to do for the first 35 to 40 minutes. And then the last 20 to 20 minutes, 20 to 25 minutes, 
they could have me teach them whatever they want. They could spar. They could do whatever. And then from those uh, eight, nine, ten people, uh, at the end of the 45-day period, I would then uh, thank them, but I would pick one or two people that had a great attitude, that were great training partners, and I would say, hey, would you like to continue working with me? So that way, I went from 30-some people who called me down to eight people. I work with these eight people once, sometimes twice a week, for a period of 45 days. And then at the end of the 45 days, I took six or seven people, and I shook their hands like, thank you. I hope you got something valuable out of that. Sent them on their way. I got something out of it. They got something out of it. But the, the thing that I got out of it was I got one or two training partners who were worth their weight in gold. And I did that two or three times and ended up with four or five really good training partners that they eventually became my students. I I love your answer. I think people uh, could assume that you had – I asked you a question, if you can only train twice a week, uh, what do you do? I think people assume that you probably already knew that was coming. I just asked you that, and you had no idea uh, that that was coming. And, and with so much experience and, and, and just being around the sport and, and the martial art, that you answered it for everybody. You you covered people who just should do a little bit of stuff at home, you know, just, just get – just be at home and get some time to to do some basic some drills by yourself to all the way up to to developing your own uh, little team of 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 grapplers that you uh, develop and it's just, you covered all aspects of it. it you know no matter what your problem is there's no reason uh, why you can't uh, just like you said you can't make it to the gym every day but you could be training every day and uh yes. that was such a great answer I, i'm i i wrote down so much stuff about that i really appreciate the the experience and the and the advice you gave on that one you're welcome you have uh, a website and uh and some apps that are available is that correct could you tell us a little bit about those yes yes i uh my main website is uh royharris.com it's kind of a link to my other websites um, very excited about uh, this fall. I'm actually going to start online classes. I'm going to uh, bring back the old days of the uh, Harris Academy uh, training, but I'm going to do it more in an online format. Um, I'm very excited about the new stuff that's going to be going on my uh, my websites. And then, uh, yeah, my apps. I was very fortunate to have one of my students uh, introduce me to a uh, programmer to help me to put my instructional videos on uh, iOS apps. Unfortunately, they're only on iOS apps right now, but coming this uh, fall, closer to Christmas time, I'll be actually putting many of them on the uh, Android platform as well. Um, and right now, the apps are exclusive to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but... I've decided that uh, I'm going to be putting most of my eggs into one basket, and that is uh, I'm going to be developing a lot of apps, and my goal is to put everything in my brain on an app. Wow. And so you're going to uh, – it sounds like you're going to you're putting everything in with the app ideas. Um, are, are we thinking one huge app, or are you going to do a lot of apps about different topics? Yeah, I'm going to do um, a, 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 a an app about, I'm sorry, several apps about a variety of different topics. You know, because I've been involved in 
so many different styles of martial arts. Um, you know, my main money maker is the jujitsu. That's where most people know me. And but what's interesting about being involved in all these different arts is I've had a lot of people who really don't understand my involvement in these other arts. And I've even had some people say, "Oh yeah, Harris is a BJJ black belt who's dabbled in these other arts." No, I've done a lot more than dabble in these other arts. And um, and so I want to begin the journey of showing people uh, the depth of uh, knowledge and understanding and training that I have in Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do, in Filipino Kali, the stick, knife, and sword fighting methods, in Boxe Francaise Sabat, uh, a French kickboxing method. Um, I want to show these other areas because I, I work with a lot of different groups and... Uh, um, like recently, I just came back from Mexico and uh, I taught a group of uh, police officers a bit of what I call my low-line warfare training. Where, and I just use the word warfare as more of a, of a catchy word. It's not anything about military. But it's just simply about the fact of fighting between the groin and the ankle and fighting exclusively between the groin and the ankle and how to fight and how to counterfight. Because most people, you know, when you think of fighting, you know, they're thinking about the head and the arms um, and focusing one's attention on even fighting between the knee and the ankle. If you ask many people, they think, well, okay, I know a sidekick. Oh, there's so much more to fighting on that level than people know of. And so I plan on uh, releasing an app uh, on this particular topic and on a bunch of other topics um, in the years to come. And so I'm very, very excited about uh, this endeavor. This uh, fighting uh, be- between the ankle and knee or groin, is that, that's like a self-defense side? Uh, um, it, it can be self-defense. It, uh, it can be used in the sport of MMA. It can okay. be used in kickboxing. Um, yeah, it's just, you know how before um, the Gracies made jiu-jitsu known, Brazilian jiu-jitsu known to the rest of the world, we were really blind to all that is possible on the ground. On the ground, we think of more of wrestling and judo, taking somebody there and pinning them. Uh, that was pretty much uh, most people's mindset. I mean, yeah, you had people like Gene LaBelle, who was kind of like the grandfather of uh, grappling in this country. Um, you had those people who were doing finger locks and thumb locks and neck cranks and foot locks. Um, but most of us were really blind to all the possibilities of fighting on the ground. It's the same thing with this low-lying warfare or fighting um, and only doing your techniques, whether it's a throw or a takedown or uh, a strike, doing them between um, the knee and the ankle. It's a whole other world. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. I, I, uh, I'm having a hard time grasping what's going on here. I'm looking, looking forward to the app. How could somebody make sure that when the app comes out that they're notified? Um, RoyHarris.com uh, will have all of the updates on 
my seminars, my workshops, uh, the new apps that come out. I got a new book uh, coming out this fall as well. So, yeah, I put all my updates on uh, RoyHurst.com. Okay, that sounds great. And we'll put a, a link to all the uh, different websites and, and, and apps and uh, books that you have out on the uh, on the website that. there or on the show notes. I appreciate you uh, giving us the interview here, and I, and I know everybody has enjoyed your answers. Um, thank you very much for uh, coming on to the BJJ Brick podcast. Well, thank you very much for your time, and thank you for this opportunity. I, I really want to thank Roy Harris for giving me his time and, and sharing uh, his, his experience with us. And, and uh, I really hope you guys appreciate who he is and, and what he uh, was able to share today. Um, tremendous honor. And I, I really enjoyed him talking about his over 40 mindset, you know, uh, specifically the first two things he, you know, safety above all and enjoyment. Those are, those are two big things I, that I'm on. Um, when people aren't training safely, that seems to be like a hot button issue for me. And I, I tend to, um, try to stop that immediately. You know, if I see somebody doing something that's unsafe, I, I am not always the most, I, I try to be a fun, loving, you know, easy, happy, uh, happy guy, you know, easy going. And, but when I see somebody doing something that they shouldn't be doing, especially if they know better, uh, I, I, you know, safety above all, I'd rather be safe than nice all the time. So, uh, not that I'm turning into a total jerk or anything, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let them know that that's not acceptable. And, uh, and then enjoyment. This is a hobby. We're, we're, we're here to have fun and enjoy what we're doing. And, uh, we're also fortunate that this thing that we find so fun is a great exercise. Yeah. And I can really relate to Roy, uh, you know, being over 40. As I've got older, injuries pop up more and more often, which, uh, too many injuries make it where it's not enjoyable. I start thinking, boy, it's just poor for me. So I, I'm, I really watch who I train with. I try to make sure I'm really well warmed up. But the biggest thing is if you're going to keep doing this sport, you have to love it. Like Roy says, there's got to be that enjoyment. And I, to be honest, I don't know how somebody could not enjoy this sport. This sport is awesome. And to me, it's not about competition. It's not about – anything else to me it's just about having a good time i i like to uh i like my training partners have a good time and and this sport is so fun it's just uh, it's like a big chess match and and besides even the exercise i'm getting it's just it's just fun to match your mind mentally go for that next move and try to outsmart somebody so uh enjoyment it to me is number one here if you want to interact with us on social media there's a few ways you could do that uh, our facebook page is probably our best way um Facebook.com slash BJJ Brick. That's easy. We have a Twitter account, a YouTube account. That's easy. They're all pretty easy. Uh, I think there's Instagram, and uh, I think we have a Pinterest. we got a few different things. Facebook seems to be the thing that we're out, uh, we do the best. Um, not that we're so great at it, but it's just something that we, we enjoy going to. Um, you can message us on there as well. It's an easy way to contact us both. We always like to meet new friends uh, in the jiu-jitsu world. Um, speaking of that, uh, we're here in the Midwest, Wichita, Kansas. If you happen to uh, uh, come out here in the Midwest, you know, send us a message. We'd love to uh, train with you. Uh, we're always uh, looking to uh, get on the mat with listeners and uh, learning from you and uh, just having a good time. So, uh, you know, check us out there. Um, also, gi patches. I know we've talked about gi patches numerous times, but... Uh, if you want a BJJ Brick Gi Patch, it's a it's a small patch, uh, just like uh, it's got Byron and I on it, just like on our uh, Facebook page and our our website there. Uh, go on to iTunes, go on to Stitcher Radio, 
write us a review. Uh, hopefully, we'll earn a five-star review. But if not, uh, give us what you think we, we earned. Um, send us a message, uh, either on the Facebook page or to bjjbrick at gmail.com. Let us know that was you, um, so that because uh, otherwise we have no clue it was you. Let us know it was you. We will get you out of patch. And sorry, United States only. Uh, we just are too cheap. We haven't sold enough audiobooks uh, to... Uh, uh, pay the postage yet so um, uh, definitely check out the uh, the gee patch um, uh, we'd, we'd appreciate you showing support by wearing it yep it's always fun to send out those gee patches Gary um, yep. I want to start something new here always. and see if it uh, see if it takes off a little bit um, if if you want to go to the website and comment on this episode this is episode 98 uh, I would like you to answer this question if you're over 40 what is your favorite submission or just favorite technique? What is, if you like a sweep or a certain submission best, go to the website, answer that, and we'll, I like to see um, just uh, the audience that's over 40, what you're doing out there and what you prefer. So uh, that would be a great place to have a little conversation about, uh, about jiu-jitsu. So only if you're over 40 can you answer the question? I don't know. If, if you're a little under or if, or maybe yeah. if you're under and you train with somebody who's over 40, what do they do? You know, what are they doing? Are they, are they doing some crazy submission? Are they, they're keeping to the basics? Um, so that's a, I guess if you're under, uh, you know, let us know a little bit about one of your teammates and, and what they're good at. Yeah, that's awesome. I like that. Yeah, definitely, uh, let us know. Uh, tell us, tell us your favorite submission. Gary, we are coming up very close to episode 100 here. And that's going to be uh, – we're going to need a little help from the audience. Definitely. Uh, 100 is a special number. It's Now we have three numbers instead of just two. So uh, that just shows we've been doing this for 100 weeks. So we've got a, we've got a show, a special show where we're going to include the audience. And, and uh, basically we want you to uh, uh, do a little audio clip for us. Uh, send it to us. Uh, let us know. What jiu-jitsu has done for you. Um, it's such a great sport. Uh, we hear great stories all the time. We see people smiling when they talk about jiu-jitsu. So tell us. Tell us what it has done for you and how it has impacted your life. Yep. If you can, just record it on your phone with the uh, little memo button or memo app that it comes with. If that doesn't work, email us at our, you know, bjjbrick at gmail.com, and I'll get with you and we'll record one together. Um, we really need some participation on this one to make it a great show. And, you know, we're just a couple episodes away from it, and I need time to edit this. So really this is probably one of the last times that uh, we'll be able to hear from you and share your, your story with the community. Uh, we're really looking forward to that. Yeah, how cool is that? You can tell your friends you're on a podcast and uh, let all your training partners know, and they can uh, all listen to you. So uh, kind of neat, kind of neat. Gary, as usual, we've wrapped up most of the business that we had to talk to today, talk to talk about today and we're down to the part we've talked about the audiobook i made a while back about your first year in bjj but gary is working on an audiobook um of his own another audiobook um and like i've told told you guys before byron's my manager so he lets me know what audiobooks i'm going to be working on so uh this one i, I haven't heard about yet but uh um let, let's hear it byron i'll i'll, I'll get it going yeah, absolutely. It seems like you always forget the title of your own books. Um, oh, this, I've been choked out a little too many times. <laughs> this book has a nice, uh, nice picture. It's like a black and white silhouette of Gary sitting on a train, uh, on a, a box car. It's called Box Cars and Hitchhiking: How I Crossed the U.S. with Only Fifteen Dollars and a Black Eye. Gary, uh, just tell us a little bit about your adventure across the United States and. Uh, well, you happened? know that 
the neat thing is, is you think about jujitsu. It's really an adventure. It's a journey. And I mean, a lot of us go around to different towns, train at different places. We realize the value of cross training that we're going to learn more by training with more people, you know, just open up our minds and learn new techniques. So this, uh, this audio book is going to be my story of how I've, how I basically just put 15 bucks in my pocket. I started at the coast, you know, I went back home to New York and, uh, I started from New York and, uh, you know, I hopped trains and, uh, went all the way around the United States and, uh, learned a lot of jujitsu, got a lot of black eyes, some sore knees. i Busted up my ribs a couple times, but uh, that's what we're going to talk about. So uh, it's a uh, great audiobook, uh, well worth it. How'd you get the first black eye on the trip? You know, I hate to tell you, the first black eye is right off the bat. You know, I hopped a train, and uh, as we stopped, I was, uh, you know, coming out of the train, trying to sneak out of the train, but the conductor called me, and uh, he wasn't too happy with somebody hitching a free ride, so uh, he punched me. Punched you right in the face, right in the eye. Yeah, take. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, so it happens. Don't, you got it. Don't don't hitch rides on trains where you're not supposed to be there. You know what Rex Quando says? Block it every time. Well, he also told me to break the wrist and walk away. So I don't think that guy's a conductor anymore because it's hard to conduct with a broken wrist. Now you broke the wrist. Literally, you broke it, huh? Yeah. Yep. Break the wrist and walk away. He can't even be a music conductor anymore. Yeah. Yep. That's a. Uh, it hurts you. Shattered his dreams, Gary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> All right, well, we have, uh, as we continue to spiral off off air, we'll let everybody else go. <laughs> yeah, definitely uh, uh, tune in next week. Uh, we have a great uh, interview next week with uh, um, Alexander Trans, uh, basically a black belt there from Checkmat Academy, uh, very high-level competitor, so uh, don't miss that. Wow, that's, that's going to be a lot of fun talking with somebody of that uh, caliber. We want to thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to shower. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs>